Good morning again. For those of you that I have not met, as Thomas says, my name is Jan Skaggs. I am a member of Covenant Presbyterian Church, and it is an honor and a daunting honor to be in this pulpit today, closing out our Lenten sermon series on counterfeit gods. Hopefully this series has prepared our hearts for the turn into Holy Week next week, and we will finish today by looking at the counterfeit god of power. I want to start by telling you a story about my first conscious recognition that power was a really good thing to have. Uh, I was about nine years old, and my little brother and I decided we wanted to get a very special gift for our mother for Mother's Day. So we pedaled our little bikes down to the only gift shop in our small town that we grew up in, and we spent a long time very deliberately looking at everything and arguing a little bit um, and picking the gift that we wanted for my mom. And so we knew how much it cost, and so we felt like we could make that, and we went home. And for several weeks, we saved up our allowance and our pennies until we had enough. And the day finally came when we were going to go get the gift. And we were so excited because this is the first time we'd ever done anything like this by ourselves. And so we got on our bikes again, and we took our little bag of coins, and we pedaled down to the gift shop. And we walked in the door with this excitement and eagerness to get the gift. And... Um, no one looked at us. And we couldn't get anybody to get the gift out of the display case. And they continued ignoring us to the point that my little brother was in tears and kept asking to leave because we weren't wanted there. And that made me furious. And I remember standing there thinking, I'm going to grow up and make a lot of money and come back and buy this shop and then you are not going to ignore me anymore. <laughs> uh, clearly, I equated money with power, and I remember the frustration of, of being powerless and not being able to make the situation different for my little brother or for me. Well, obviously, that didn't happen. Someone eventually noticed us and took our money, and we went home with our present for my mom, and she was very happy with it, even though it had been a somewhat sullied experience from our perspective. But I never forgot that sense of feeling powerless. It was only when I got older that I realized that's a common experience for most of us at one point in our life or another, where we want power to change something and we don't have it. So let us open the scriptures today. We're going to look at a power passage from Genesis 50, uh, verses 15 through 21. I think it's on page 42 of your pew Bible. It's right in the uh, beginning. It happens in the story of Joseph. Many of you will remember that story. Uh, if you don't, I encourage you to go back and read it because it's a wonderful picture of God's sovereign power. But Joseph was the youngest of, at that time, 11 boys and he was daddy's boy. He was his father, Jacob's favorite. And he didn't mind telling his 10 older brothers that repeatedly, apparently. He had a couple of dreams one night that told that they were going to bow down and serve him, and he apparently was a little obnoxious in the way he shared those dreams with his brothers, and they decided they were going to get rid of him. He uh, was annoying and they were jealous that he was daddy's favorite, and so they decided to kill him. But through God's intervention, he was sold into slavery to Egypt instead, 
and spent time as a slave and also as a prisoner in jail. And eventually, through God's sovereign grace and power, he was released from prison, elevated to the position of prime minister in Egypt, which was second in power only to the Pharaoh. He had a plan to save the Egyptians and provide for them during a seven-year drought. His brothers came seeking food, and through some other hilarious uh, testings of their heart, he realized their hearts had changed, and so they were restored in their relationship. They eventually brought Jacob and all the entire family to live in Egypt. But then Jacob died, and that's where we pick up the story in Genesis 50, verses 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open up your word to us, open up our hearts to us, and most importantly, open up your heart to us, that we may learn what we need to know about this counterfeit God of power that so many of us have, and come and replace it with yourself. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 50:20 was one of our first family memory verses when the kids were little, and uh, I, that was back when I didn't even know Genesis had 50 chapters, uh, but it was one that had been picked by one of my children. It has become a life verse for me because it reveals God's sovereignty so beautifully. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of lives. For our purposes today, this scripture also shows us the difference in, between human power and what the world expects of human power and God's power and how God's power was exercised by a man that did, definitely did not have a counterfeit God. Let's remember what a counterfeit God is. It's a good gift from God that uh, we value too much. We look to it to provide meaning and purpose and fulfillment in our lives to give us the thing that only God can give us. Power is a good thing. It is given to us uh, by God, but our sin nature tends to make it into something it shouldn't ever be. And we've all experienced that. We end up abusing it, either overtly with outright acts of power or covertly through manipulation of circumstances, situations, people. We've experienced that in politics, in, in corporations, in family structures, in marriages, in relationships. We just can't seem to get power right. Now, before I had to do this sermon at Thomas's gracious invitation, 
Um, I tended to think of power in terms of governments or corporations. And Timothy Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, gives us these cultural narratives about political power. What happens when we let political parties or ideologies or activism or causes uh, become too much? We end up fearing and we end up demonizing our opponents. And he gives us a real good picture of that. But the counterfeit god of power is all around us and it's in us, it's within us. So I wanna think about it a little more personally. It's not just out there, it's in here. Um, as my story at the beginning illustrated, we all have a deep-seated fear of being powerless. We have this illusion that we can control things if only we had more power. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, the original temptation was to become like God. In other words, to take power over our own lives. And as the poet says, to be masters of our fate and captors, captains of our souls. We want power over our lives, and if we're honest, we want it over other people because we want other people to do what we think is best. And we think we can accomplish that if we have enough power. We can manage our environment and our uh, relationships and bring happiness and significance and security to, our, to ourselves. That's what we think. But any suggestion of power is only an illusion. Now, if you don't believe that, if you think you have a lot of power, then you need to hang out with a bunch of two-year-olds, okay? Anybody who's been the parent, the grandparent, the caretaker of, or just an interested party with two-year-olds is very well aware with that very familiar primal power struggle where the kid eventually stomps their foot, puts their hands on their hips and goes, you are not the boss of me. And I would uh, venture to say that every single one of us goes, oh yeah, <laughs> game on, to see who has power in that situation. Keller reminds us that 95% of the course of our lives is completely outside of our control. The family we're born into, our heritage, our, uh, our genetic heritage, our natural gifts and abilities, our childhood um, environment, our intellectual capacity, all of that. All that we are and all that we have is given to us by God. And yet, we struggle for power because we want control and we think we can achieve it and we think we can do a better job than God. Keller calls this type of control a deep idol because it is buried underneath the other counterfeit gods that we have in our lives. Culture teach us, teaches us that power it comes from wealth. We've looked at that one. Uh, position, political office, leadership, uh, good reputation, public opinion, all of those kinds of things. But regardless of how the counterfeit God is presented on the surface, underneath is that deep idol of power. The goal is to control people, situations, circumstances, finances, whatever. Now, the irony is power is just like all the other counterfeit gods. It promises what it cannot deliver. We think we want power because it will give us freedom and control, and what it ends up doing is controlling us and bringing fear because we fear of losing it. So we get balled up in that kind of human power. Scripture defines power very differently. 
Uh, as with so many other things, power is an upside-down value in the kingdom. Jesus tells us if we want to be great, we have to be the least. If we want to be first, we have to be last. Paul tells us that it is only in his weakness that he is strong. That kind of godly biblical power is revealed in humility and confession and repentance, dependence on God, service of others, letting go of our own agenda, and trusting in the sovereignty of God to bring things about the way they're supposed to be, much like Joseph did. Those internal qualities that Jesus talks about, that humility and repentance and confession and service heart, that is, those are exhibitions of godly power. You think in God's kingdom, who, who are some of the most powerful people you can think of? Mother Teresa comes to mind for me because she was so humble. Who knew that out of the slums of Calcutta such power could come? Um, another person comes to mind, our Zambia partner pastor, uh, Reverend Lovemore Narenda, who is the most humble, prayerful, gentle man who is now leading Covenant into a new ministry in Zambia of taking the gospel to the least powerful people, and that's children. So how do you know if power has become a counterfeit God for you? Well, I would say to you, if any of the other counterfeit gods we've studied in this lecture, I mean, in this sermon series, uh, resonated with you, like success, relationships, wealth, um, if they've resonated with you, probably if you scratch hard enough underneath is that deep idol of power. If they haven't resonated with you, then I want you to ask yourself this question. How do I respond when my authority is either ignored or challenged? How do I feel when I'm overlooked or treated in a way that makes me feel unimportant? How much do I worry and what do I worry about? The idol of power can be unmasked by that. How you respond to those questions indicates to you whether or not you have a deep idol of power functioning in your life. Most all of us do because we seek security and significance and safety. And so most of us have that. Let's go back and take a quick look at Genesis 50 to see what it teaches us about power. First of all, we have the brothers. Now, the brothers are an example of the expectation of earthly power and how they expect it to be uh, played out, probably because they would have done what they expect Joseph to do, right? They are afraid, they're afraid he's going to exercise his great power to exact revenge on them. So they try to hide behind the final words of their father, which we're not even sure that he actually, you know, said those things. They may have made them up. But they're hiding behind his name and Joseph's love for their dad, and they're not even sure that that's going to work. Joseph obviously had the power to do with them whatever he willed. They were completely defenseless against his earthly power. When Joseph got that message from them, his response was to weep. Why? Because they totally misunderstood. They misunderstood what they had received from him, how God was working in their lives and in the lives all around them, and what power really was all about. 
So we have the brothers on one hand, we have Joseph on the other hand, who had no illusions at all about his power. He knew that God had given him everything that he had. So he demonstrated God's power in a remarkable, incredible way. How did he do it? He forgave his brothers. He forgave them. How do we know he had done that? Well, first of all, he tells them not to fear. He tells them that twice. Secondly, he was very humble. He said, you know, am I in God's place? No, I don't sit in God's place of judgment. Joseph was, as we've said before, right-sized. He had his relationship with God in the right perspective. And thirdly, he kept a big picture perspective. He recognized God's hand in the events of his life and all that God, the great work that God had been doing in those horrible, horrible circumstances all these many years. It's been at least 30 years, maybe longer. So he recognized God's hand in what was happening. And then finally, he promised to provide for his brothers and to care for them. He was bringing life to them. If you think about it, that is a picture of Jesus. That is a picture of the demonstration of God's power in humility, in loving, tender care, in forgiveness, in restoration, and in the bringing of life. God's power always has those elements involved with it, and we can see that in Joseph. Now, if you identified a deep idol of power in your life a while ago, the question remains, what do we do with it? How do we deal with it? Joseph teaches us we humbly recognize who we are in Christ and we forgive. All of us have a person we need to forgive. Many of us have relationships that are broken or at least cracked and need to be restored. It is through God's power that we can release the hurt and the resentment and enter into the freedom of forgiveness which then in turn releases God's power for restoration and bringing life. Of course, this is so clearly seen in Jesus Christ, and we will get to see this next week during Holy Week. So when I said that, we all have a person who needs to be forgiven. Somebody came to your mind. That's your homework for the week, is to work on forgiving that person for past hurts and to step forward in restoring that relationship. If you're having trouble with that, come talk to me or Thomas or Jill. We'd be happy to talk with you about it. But that's your homework, is forgiveness for this next week. Okay, that's done with the idol of power. Now we're going to close out this sermon series, okay? So what do we do about these counterfeit gods that we've identified in our lives that the Lord has graciously revealed to us? Discerning them is not enough, you know, each one of these counterfeit gods has a kingdom value that serves as its antidote, if you will. Okay, You turn from something, the counterfeit god, toward something else, a kingdom value. So, for example, if we've made relationships our counterfeit god, we turn from that toward more love for Christ. We turn from wealth to extravagant generosity. We turn from success to faithfulness. Today, we turn from power toward humility and forgiveness. But as we all know, if we've struggled with these counterfeit gods this last Lenten season, they can't be removed. 
They can only be replaced. Our identity, our meaning, our sense of self-worth and value ultimately comes only from Christ. And what we need is to understand our belovedness to God. And when we do, we won't look anywhere else. Jesus speaks to us the blessing that our hearts desperately need to hear, which is, you are my precious child. You are beloved, and I delight in you. Keller reminds us that Jesus held on at the cross in obedience, even unto death, to obtain that blessing from God, not for him, he had it, but for us. When we understand that and we understand who we are in Christ, we don't need anything else. How will we understand that blessing? If you have heard it, fabulous. Tell somebody else that they need because they need to hear it. If you have not heard it, we have a wonderful opportunity this week coming up to gaze in awe and wonder at Christ's death on the cross so that we can have that blessing. Because that is a demonstration of his incomparable love and power. That is what will draw us closer to him, and more of him is what we need to replace these counterfeit gods. Let's pray. Lord, how we want more of you. Continue revealing to us our counterfeit gods, the ones that we have put in place of you and replace those with yourself, Lord. Unstop our ears that we can hear your blessing. Help us to know in every fiber of our being that we are beloved and precious to you. And let that marvelous fact fill us with more and more love for you. And we pray that in the gracious and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.